Good morning. It's really good to see you all. I hope that you are, are, are doing well. This is a, a big day, a long-anticipated day uh, by me, at least. I'm not sure about you, but for me, as I've been thinking and praying and studying and reading, because today we are going to embark on the great journey through the book of Exodus, through God's word. Exodus, in the Old Testament, the second book in the Bible, is one of the basic building blocks of all the Bible. It's not just telling us a grand and great story, but it teaches us great and glorious theological truths, and we'll talk about some of those this morning. Exodus as, is as important as Genesis is. Genesis tells us about the very beginning, yes, and it tells us about creation of all things and how all things were created by the word of God. It tells us about Noah and the arky arky. It tells us about how God had called out Abraham to be father. Father Abraham had many sons, right? All these great songs that we sang in little kids Sunday school. And the little felt Moses and Abraham hanging out next to each other. And then there's Isaac. And I don't think Isaac got a cool song, did he? There's Isaac. God would put in Genesis, he would put his name upon a people. And he would tell Abram and Abraham that he would dwell with him. He covenants with him. He makes promises to him and to his people. Exodus not only continues that story from Genesis, but it lays out the foundation right next to Genesis as the Lord begins and continues or continues to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham. And now when we think about Exodus, we might think about those huge theological, or not theological, but huge theatrical movies that's based upon those stories. Maybe the uh, 1956 classic by Cecil DeMille with Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. It's a good one. Or maybe a younger generation, you've watched the, the 1998 animated film, The Prince of Egypt, and that one's pretty good too. Or maybe more recently, the 2014 version, Exodus, God and Kings, which if you saw it, it completely solidifies to all of us that Hollywood is incapable of making a biblically accurate film. Amen. It was terrible. It was a complete dumpster fire of a movie, and the box office completely reflected that. How do you mess up such an amazing story? Hollywood says, hold my. <laughs> the story of Exodus, if you've read, read the book, is a masterpiece. It is an epic tale. It is amazing what we see. It has held a massive, significant place for the entire human race in its story. 
It defines the very existence of the Jewish people. Because it's where God rescues them to be his people. It is the story that has given hope to every captive and every slave in hope of freedom. And rightfully so. Because Exodus shows us that there is a God. And this God saves. This God delivers. This God gives freedom to those who are in bondage. For us as Christians, it is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in all of the Old Testament. Because here is where we see God's first great act of redemption. And in Exodus, it beelines us straight to the cross. But as amazing as the narrative is, we don't want to miss the main point and the main theme of Exodus because it's not all about babies in baskets in the Nile or plagues and death angels and pharaohs and miracles, but it also shows us God's law. It shows us God's covenant and his commands to his people. And it sets for them and for his people, this is how you worship me. This is how you relate to me. This is how you glorify me. Exodus is about the glory of God. It is about the glory of God and how God makes and saves a people for himself, for his glory. So why are we looking at Exodus? Why are we, Lord willing, going to take so much time and effort to preach through Exodus? And the reason why is because if you are in Christ, Exodus, as I've already said, points us to the gospel. And Exodus is the pattern by which God has saved his people. And this pattern still exists. And if you have been saved, then, that, then the whole point of Exodus still, still lies in you, that you have been saved for the glory of God. Amen. Listen to this. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, the church, those who are in Christ, we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Let's talk about some basic things of Exodus, the word exodus means to exit, to leave, to depart. And we first find the idea of leaving, depart, or left in chapter 19 when it says the Israelites left Egypt. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek around the third century is when the first five books of the Old Testament were translated. In the Greek, they titled Exodus, Exodus. Because in the Greek, that's what that means, to leave, to depart. They gave the, the Greek verb to be used there. 
In Exodus, we, we don't see, it doesn't tell us exactly who the author of Exodus is, but we do know who the author of Exodus was. Throughout the story, we see over and over, Moses is told to write down his experiences. And even greater authority than, than that is our Lord's Savior quoted Exodus. And when he quoted Exodus, he tells us what he is quoting is what Moses wrote. And therefore, if Jesus says it, then it is true. Moses is the author, breathed out by the Holy Spirit and written by Moses for our spiritual benefits. And as we'll see in just a few moments, Exodus looks back to the promises of God, and we're going to walk through some of those in, in Genesis, but Exodus, as I was saying in the beginning, that Exodus stands to hold up the rest of the Pentateuch. I think it's something like three out of the five great acts of God in the first five books of the Bible happen in Exodus. It stands to hold up the rest of the Pentateuch. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy stand upon Exodus. And then the rest of the Old Testament then builds upon the theological framework of Exodus, the theological framework of salvation and, and redemption that continues to flow throughout the Bible is built upon Exodus, and then is fulfilled in the New Testament. The Psalms often sing of God's salvation, that and salvation that looks and sounds and feels like the salvation and deliverance from Exodus, as it recounts God's love and his strength and his faithfulness and his covenant and his law. The prophets look back to the paradigm of salvation and the promises of God from Exodus as the one who brought them out of Egypt will soon deliver them again. Exodus is not only biblical, but as I said earlier, it's theological. The Jews named it, didn't name it Exodus. They called it the book of names. And mainly because of our passage this morning, you'll see that there's a, there's a list of names there, but also because in Exodus is where God reveals his name. Who shall I say sent me? Moses asked the Lord. Tell them, I am. I am. Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, right? I mean, the great I am has given his name to his people. And it is he who hears the cries of his people and raises up a deliverer. It is him who, who sends the plagues upon Egypt. It is him who, who divides the sea, who crushes Pharaoh's army underneath the waves. It is he who leads his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It is he who provides food from heaven and his people and for his people he gives them the law and he fills the tabernacle with his glory from beginning to end exodus is not about man it is not about israel it is not about moses but it's deeply theological about the lord god about this great i am Amen. and what we will see in exodus is his mercy we will see his love. We will see his holiness. We will see his 
justice and his righteousness and his glory and his power and his might and his sovereignty over all things, over Pharaoh, over man, and over nature. And as the great lawgiver, you know, whenever we, whenever in the Bible the Exodus is recounted, Moses is rarely mentioned. It's God who's upheld. Well, some of you smarty smarts out there would say, well, hey, what about Hebrews 11? <laughs> Moses' faith, right? Yes, absolutely. There is a, that's a great example. But what is the object of Moses' faith? And that should not be missed. So take that, smarty smarts. Let's go deeper. Because the theology of Exodus is deeply Christological which means in it we ultimately see and that the interpretation is pointing us to the person and work of Christ. It's pointing us to the Son of God. You know, after Jesus was resurrected, Luke 24 recounts this really cool story. He shows up on the, the road to Emmaus, and there's some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus out of the city of Jerusalem, and they are sad, and they are distraught, and Jesus shows up, and he veils their eyes so that they cannot recognize him, and he asks them what's wrong. They tell him, because the Savior, Jesus, was crucified. He's now dead. And so Jesus comforts them by doing what? By having a Bible study with them. He comforts them by taking them all the way back to the beginning, to the word of God, to Moses and the prophets, to show them the, what the scriptures have said. All pointing to Jesus, walking on the road to Emmaus, resurrected. In Jude chapter 5, well, there's no chapters in Jude, but Jude verse 4, excuse me, we are to understand our salvation is like those who have been delivered out of Egypt. Slaves being set free by the power and might of a sovereign Lord. The Exodus also sets a pattern for Jesus' life. Right? Moses was born and sovereignly preserved to deliver his people, and so was Jesus. He was born and he was preserved to deliver his people. And the way that he was preserved was how? He was sent to Egypt with his parents. As a child, he sojourned in Egypt, and that's why we, we see the, the fulfillment of that verse there in Matthew 2, uh, 2.15 from Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. And so was Israel. Like Israel who, who crossed through the waters of death and through the, through the Dead Sea, Jesus also passed through the waters of baptism. Israel, for their sin, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, and yet he did not give in to temptation. In Luke's gospel at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured gloriously, and Moses and Elijah showed up and appeared in splendor before them. And what did they talk about? The weather? No. They spoke of his departure. They spoke of the cross and the resurrection. In fact, the Greek word right there in Luke for departure is exodus. 
They spoke of his exodus, and that's pretty significant, especially with Moses being there and Moses knowing something about departure, knowing the logistics of departing. The cross and resurrection is where Jesus passed through death and delivered his people from bondage, the bondage to sin and death and into glory. Moses' exodus began, started the Passover. But Jesus' exodus on Passover, mind you, fulfilled the Passover. Paul correctly said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So theologically, exodus is pointing us to Christ as our salvation. But exodus is also for us very practically. Saying in 1 Corinthians, still in chapter 10, you'll see there's a warning to the church. A church that's given themselves over into idolatry. And Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses the tragic downfall of Israel into idolatry, worshiping the golden calf, right? A a story from Egypt, or, or from Exodus, after the deliverance from Egypt. And he uses that as an example there in verses 6 through 10. And he says, practically take their failures and use them as an example. He says in verse 11, he says, now these things happen to them as an example, to them, Israel, right? As an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. So what is he saying here? What is God's word telling us? He's saying Exodus is for you. This isn't ancient, just ancient history. It's for us to learn from, and boy, do I have a lot to learn. There's a well-known quote that says, even a fool can learn from his own mistakes, but a wise man can learn from others. Exodus is a story of Israel, but it is also our own story. And I remind you of Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin I become obedient from the heart to stand to the, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from, from sin and becoming slaves of righteousness. Did we need a deliverer? You betcha. Did we need a savior to come? Did we need a deliverer? Yes. Then Exodus is for you. Now with all that, and that was long, Let's look at Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Iskachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. That's a good name. Not so good in Judges, though. (laughs) Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. And they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And that's where we're going to stop this morning. 
Moses begins Exodus again right where Genesis left off. Israel is in Egypt. The family is in Egypt. And in fact, these, these verses here, 1 through 7, are almost verbatim from Genesis 46, which is the chapter where uh, uh, is, it was when the Lord tells Jacob to take his family to Egypt. However, this story of how they get to this point where they go to Egypt begins a, a whole lot earlier. And yes, it does actually start in Genesis chapter 1, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram to leave his country and go to the land that he will show him. Here's Abram, middle of nowhere, Iraq, and God calls him to leave his country and to leave everything he knew and to take his family, and he believed and he trusted the Lord, and he packed everything up, and he left. Fast forward to Genesis 15. The Lord then covenanted with Abram and told him that he would be with him. I will be with you, and you will be great. Abram, you will be great. And however, Abram, if you remember the story, he was concerned with not his going to be greatness or the Lord would be with him, but the problem of not having children. How would I be great if I have no children, if I have no heirs? I'm going to have to pass everything I, all, everything I have to my, to my servant. And the Lord says, no, that's not the way it's going to be done. But the Lord said that I will provide. He says in Genesis 15, verse 5, he says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. That's a great statement meaning you can't. I got the number right here, but you, you, you can't. And then he says to, said to him this. He says, so shall your offspring be. And what does Abraham do? And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Now from there, from this time forward, a lot happens. If you're familiar with this, a lot happens. But Abraham is then circumcised from the covenant, right? And he's renamed to Abraham. And the Lord does fulfill his promise to him. And he provides a son to him and Sarah in their very old, decrepit age. Is that a good word or not? I don't know. Probably not. Very old age, right? Very miraculous. That's the point. It's to, to show the point that I am powerful over this. And he provides for him a son. And this son, his name is is Isaac. And through Isaac is where these promises will be fulfilled. Isaac then marries Rebekah, Genesis chapter 24. They have twins, God bless them, <laughs> Jacob and Esau, Genesis chapter 25. Jacob swindles his brother from out of his birthright and blessing, and he runs away to his uncle's house to get married. Kind of complicated in our culture. Goes to his uncle's house to get married, all right? Genesis chapter 29, and then we get to their sons. He gets married twice, another long story, and he has the sons listed out in our passage, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, all by Leah, and then Benjamin, and Joseph by Rachel, 
Dan and Naphtali by Rachel's handmaid, Bilah, which another crazy story. Gad and Asher by Leah's handmaid, Zilpah, another crazy story. Lots of drama, but the story goes on. Jacob gets old, his sons grow up, and Jacob, because he loved Rachel more, and that's the, that's the one he wanted to marry in the, from the beginning, but was tricked and married Leah, but he also loved Leah, but he loved Rachel more. And Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, and so he, he loved Joseph and Benjamin more, and it was very obvious to the rest of, 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 his, of his sons. Then long story short, Joseph's brothers became jealous over Joseph and began to plot to kill him. But instead of killing him, they end up selling him into slavery in hopes to never to see him again. Joseph ends up in Egypt as a slave in Potiphar's house, who was an officer of Pharaoh. And to say the least, Joseph had some ups and downs, particularly downs in Potiphar's house, where he is unjustly ends up in prison. But as the Lord would have it, I love this, as the Lord would have it, also known as divine providence, Pharaoh needed his dreams interpreted, and guess what Joseph was pretty good at? Yes. He was just the man, and in Genesis chapter 41, he does so. So God then uses Joseph to help Pharaoh and then raises him up in the eyes of Pharaoh and is given him, and then Pharaoh gives him charge over tons over, his, over Egypt, including a major one, because this was part of the interpretation of dreams, was there was a massive famine coming. And so Pharaoh gave Joseph charge over preparing the land and the people for famine. And lo and behold, this same famine would affect Joseph's family back in, back in Canaan. And guess where the family had to turn to because of the famine? That's right, they had to go to Egypt. And they asked for assistance. And Joseph, Joseph's brothers, representing their family, goes to Egypt. And they end up asking, unknowingly, they're asking Joseph, who is in charge, for help. Now, in the end, there's lots there. In the end, Joseph does help his family. And then he reveals himself to them, and they are reconciled. It's actually a very sweet passage of reconciliation because the brothers think they are going to kill them. So now back in Genesis chapter 46, this is why Jacob packs up his family and leads them into Egypt so that their brother Joseph, who is already there, can help them. Now look at Genesis 50. So if you're in Exodus 1, you just got to maybe turn one page back over. Because this is where we hear Moses bringing these two stories together. In verses 1 through 6, we hear about the death of Jacob. And just like throughout Genesis, we hear over and over again, the servants of the Lord die. Men are dying. Men are under the curse since Genesis chapter 3, men die. Ab Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. In verse 6, Joseph makes a request, the request that his father asked him. He makes a request to Pharaoh to take his father back to the land of Canaan, which is to fulfill the promise that he made to, to Joseph. But there's more to it than that. There's a sign here. There's a sign here that God fulfills his promises and that his people will eventually go back to the land. 
In verses 7 through 13, Joseph and all his brothers say they take Jacob back to be buried. And this is, marks again something very important for us and for the people to understand, for Israel to, to understand, because Jacob was not buried in Egypt. He was buried in the promised land, which means he is not setting their hope to be found in Egypt. He's setting their hope in the land that the Lord would give them. Brothers and sisters, that teaches us so much. Yes, we, we may be buried here, but our hope is not here in this Egypt. We're just wandering. But one day our hope is in when the Lord comes back and restores all things into the land that he provides of the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 14 and 21, we read that at the opening of our gathering this morning. And what, made, what, what, what makes more clear in these verses here about Joseph is in the evil that was perpetrated against him. And anywhere else than really all of the Bible almost, it seems, except for maybe in the Gospels, is number one is that our God is sovereign. And that he works all things out for his glory and for our joy. Again, that sounds like the kind of evil that happened to Christ on the cross, but way worse. And yet the Lord uses that sovereignly to bring about the salvation of his people. Moses stresses God's sovereignty in Joseph's darkest experiences to show that he provides and he's fulfilling his promises and that he loves his people. And in the last part, Genesis 50, 22 to 26, we hear the purpose of Israel's soon suffering in Egypt. But Joseph still reminds his family that the promises do not die with him. But soon the Lord would lead them out of this land. Life in Egypt is about to get really, really dark. But the Lord will provide. Generations will die, but the Lord will provide. And all of that is setting up what's about to go down in Exodus. They need to remember that even though God's servants come, they also go. They die. But God's promises to his people endure forever. They need to remember that their hope, again, is not in Egypt as safe and as secure and comfortable as it may be now, with Joseph being kind of their, their mediator, as awesome as it is, as comfortable as it is, as, 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 as provision as it's been, that's not their land, and it will become painfully apparent to them very soon. And lastly, they need to hear how sovereign the Lord is. What was meant for evil, slavery and death and fantasy the Lord will use for their good and for their joy. And as for us, when we look at these opening verses of this grand book, I want you to see two things along those lines. I want you first to see how God is making for himself a people. And secondly, the theme of Exodus, title of this sermon, is that by God's plan, it is to save his people for his glory. So first, God is making a people for himself. There we see in verses 1 through 6, we've already said that there's a lot there. 
because it's pretty much summing up all of Genesis and it's bringing it all into just these couple of verses. And after all that, these are the people, right? This is, this is all the people. And this is how the Lord has provided for them in Egypt. But what these verses are also telling us is not just the past, but it's also preparing for us a transition that's going to take place. And the transition is this, the transition from a family into a nation. Jacob led his family into Egypt, right? We saw that from Genesis 46, with all his sons, with all his descendants, right? With all his, all his sons, all his descendants, with all 70 of them, right? So there's this connection back to, to, uh, uh, to Genesis. In verse 1, we see a very familiar phrase in, uh, that we see a very familiar phrase from Genesis, the sons of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is, is that this phrase, right, this little title, sons of Israel, is speaking about the sons of Israel, the person, which is Jacob. Why? Jacob was renamed Israel because he wrestled with God. But this is the last time in the Pentateuch that Moses will use that term to refer to Jacob. Because now it's going to refer from not Israel the person, but to Israel the nation. And again, verse 5 tells us the total that, that showed up was 70, came up from Egypt. And 70 is an interesting number throughout the Bible. It's often symbolic of completeness. That's, that's a big family. 70 people is a, is a big family. It's not a nation, but it's a big family. Some of y'all's family reunions may have more than 70 people show up to them. And yet here we see a sign that the Lord was at hand, fulfilling his promises, taking care of these, these 70 people out of the land, out of famine, and provide, providing for them. And then verse 6, we hear what we already knew from Genesis 50 that we've already talked about, that Joseph died, lived 110 years. And by that time, he also says here in verse 6 that all of his brothers and everyone of that generation also died again. People come and people have gone. And this is important because it's preparing for us what's about to start to happen in verse 8. And everything is eventually, we see, will go downhill. But what's interesting here about these first couple of verses is, is how it's linked back to Genesis, yes, and the sons of Israel. But these sons of Israel and listed out and all the family members and the wives and such, they're not that special of a people. There's only 70 of them. They're not famous. They're not strong. They're, they're not popular. They're not great warriors. They're not wealthy. They're not particularly talented. But what makes this list of and family unique? Why would we read about them and care about them thousands of years later? It is because of their unique relationship with the Lord. And how the Lord had covenanted with this family, with, with Abraham. And the promises of the Lord were with them. And it was the Lord turning this family now into a great nation. And again, that's no small point. Because throughout history, the Lord has always been working to make a people and bringing a people unto himself. 
That was the whole point of calling and covenanting with Abraham. The Lord making a people for himself. Now through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, he is still making a people. And this people we call the church. And this whole repetition of names, as we've seen so many lists as we studied the Old Testament together, this is relatively a shorter one and much easier one, but this repetition of names should be a very practical sign to us in showing us how precious God's people are to him. I mean, think about all the drama of Genesis that we skipped over. That maybe you remembered and you giggled under your breath because Jacob had two wives. And then he has handmaids have make children with him. He messed up. Wrestles with God, swindles his brother. Not to mention some of the things that Abraham had done. As messed up and failures and sinners and evil as this people were. This God, Yahweh, great I am, has covenanted with them. And he was fulfilling his promises to them. Brothers and sisters, our covenant is not in Abraham. Our covenant is in Christ. And our covenant with Christ is far greater than this covenant that they believed in with Abraham. Abraham's covenant was one of the flesh. It was one of circumcision. But our covenant with Christ comes through his perfect, sinless blood that was shed on Calvary for his elect. And now, by his Holy Spirit, he has circumcised our hearts unto him. Genesis shows us the creation of the world, humanity through Adam, creation of a new family through Abraham, and now in Exodus, we see the creation of a new nation, a new people through the work of his redemption. But we are in Christ. We are in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, he has made us a new people. Paul tells us that he has made us new creations in Christ. He has made us completely new from the inside out. And this people will be not just of one people, but this people will be made up from every nation and from every tribe through the redemption of the blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are the church, and in Christ we are part of that people. And he has made for himself a people, and he is still making a people for himself. And I tell you that this morning, and I think that is such an important point for us this morning because that is gloriously good news for us. You are not an accident. Your salvation is not a reaction to your sin. He is making a people. He's not making lemonade out of lemons, but he is providentially working all things out according to his glory, including saving his people that he is called to be himself, to himself. And he has created us 
gloriously. And think about how he has created you by the gospel of his word, by his very word, by his grace. He has called you out like Abraham out of Iraq. He has called you out of sin and darkness. And he's called you into marvelous light. He is making a people. When we get to the second point, theme of the book of Exodus, we are saved for his glory. Verse 7, we see right here what I've already been speaking of, how he turns this family into a nation. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful. In England. You guys know what fruitful means, right? They had babies. And they had lots of babies because they increased greatly. And they multiplied. And they grew exceedingly strong so that the land... Israel, or excuse me, Egypt was filled with these Israelites. There were only 70 Israelites to start with. But now verse 7 tells us that the land was filled with them. And isn't that what God had promised? Didn't God make this promise to his people? Didn't he say that to Abraham, then we already, we just read that. We talked about it. It's Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Genesis 12. He says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. I'm sure Abraham's like, that. that's great, because here in Genesis 17, there's only two of them. Yes, here it is. Greatly. So full that the, they were exceedingly strong, and they filled the land. God gave Abraham two great promises, land and seed. And the promise of seed goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, who were commanded to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. All the way back to Genesis 1, 28. And God was keeping his promise to them to turn one family into a mighty nation fulfilling his plan and his promise for humanity and for his people. Historically, between verse 6 and 7, hundreds of years had passed since the Israelites had entered Egypt. But there was enough time for a family to become a nation. Us Roberts, we're on our way. We will outnumber you. But this, this vacation, though, is explained to us theologically. Because this remarkable growth is, is, is God. It's God keeping his covenant to his people, keeping his covenantal promises. And that brings us to a very practical question. Why? Why would God keep his promises to these people? Why would he keep it to, to these people, right? And you know Genesis. Why would he keep his promises to them? And the truth is, if we have to, if we want to make it a little bit closer, is we're really no better than Israel, were we? We're envious, we're ill-tempered at times. Are we not a people who, are, who can stubbornly refuse to follow the Lord in many areas of our life? 
We fail to live up to those perfect standards every day. And what we need, and hopefully, humbly, we realize this, is that we need the God of Exodus. And if he is our God, then he has performed a great and glorious miracle of his grace. And we can trust him to save us to the very end. But still, there's this question, why? Well, very helpful to us to answering this question, why? Why is God fulfilling his promises to them? Is Psalm 106. And Psalm 106 is a, is a long recounting of God's deliverance and redemption. In verse 6 through 8, it says, But we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. You get in the picture? Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, all right, now we're getting the picture, another picture, did not consider the wondrous works that they did, works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled at the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Throughout Exodus and throughout the whole Bible is that very purpose. God's glorious people and that he would be glorified. And throughout Exodus, God is glorified even at Pharaoh's expense. He is glorified at the downfall of Egypt. He is glorified when he reveals himself in a cloud, when he reveals himself on the mountain in the pillar of fire, the signs and wonders of frogs, flies, gnats, boils, dead animals. In revealing the covenant to Moses, he is revealing his glory, filling the tabernacle with his spirit. It's all about saving a people for his glory. The detailed instructions of the building the tabernacle and the law there in Exodus as well. These verses are not irrelevant. They're not verses that we should just skip over and say that they're just for Israel. But they are showing us that we are saved to glorify God and worship him in the ways that he desires to be worshipped. In the New Testament, we worship in spirit and in truth. He teaches about his holiness and obedience, which all means we are saved for his glory. Later in Psalm 6, verse 47, the writer says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. You see, answering that question, why, can be hard because we understand that we, like Israel, did not deserve to be saved. We do not deserve to be saved from our sin. We're not, we don't deserve to be brought out of Egypt as Jude tells us. But what does it tell us? What does the Bible say? The Bible tells us over and over again, like we saw here in Psalm 106, God has saved us for his glory. That we may give thanks 
to his holy name and praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. These are things that we may already know, that you may already know, but I wonder, do you really know that this morning? Do you really know? I mean, is that really deeply resonating within your soul, your very being, pricking you right now, resounding that this is my very purpose and existence of my life, that every joy, every suffering, every pain, every victory, every loss, every menial task of drudgery, every duty, every experience, everything is for His glory. The reason why He has saved you, the reason why He has called you out of sin and darkness, has it not been for His glory? And think about that. You are a little testimony to the glory of God. Little shining, glorious lights to the glory of God. That's hard to say when I think about myself sometimes. But you have been saved to the glory of God. Do you give thanks and praise as one who has been saved for the glory of God? Do you rest in the amen and praise the Lord in the finished work of Christ in redemption? I hope so. I hope so. Church, beloved in Christ, you have been made a people. You have been called out. You have been gathered. You have been given a name. You are no longer slaves. You are no longer orphans, but you are now sons. And we reflect the image of Christ. We reflect his glory. And we can have delight and great joy in that truth. And as we have sung already this morning, that glorious chorus we sang at the very end, none above him, none before him. All time in his hands for his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the Ancient of Days. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. And that gets us going for Exodus.